Hey everyone, I'm Brian Hoops and you are listening to Walking Through Fire. When we think of tyrants in history, often we think of the obvious ones, such as Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, and in contemporary times, Saddam Hussein. And some would even go as far as to call Napoleon a dictator. There are hundreds of terrible men that have reigned over society throughout human existence, but one contemporary one is often overlooked. The person we will be discussing today, his name was Idi Amin Dada, or he just went by Idi Amin. And he ruthlessly ruled over Uganda from 1971 to 1979. Idi Amin was a former soldier under colonial Uganda ruled by the British. Amin seized power in Uganda from democratically elected Milton Obote in 1971. Amin's reign of Uganda was marked with horrible economic decisions, brutal enforcement of policies, and strains on international relations. Outside of all that, Amin displayed erratic and eccentric behavior during his rule, which we will get into thoroughly during this show. To give you just a small taste, a small idea as to what I mean by eccentric behavior, by the end of his rule, Amin's self-appointed formal title, and I emphasize the self-appointed part when he was in charge, was, and I quote, His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, Al-Haji Dr. Idi Amin Dada, Victoria Cross, which is similar to the Medal of Honor, except the British give it out, which he did not earn, Distinguished Service Order, Military Cross, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and Uganda in particular. Now, so far, how I've presented Idi Amin as being, you know, kind of ruthless and whatnot, and yeah, I, you know, I, I came out of the gate with that. But on the other end of the coin, though, there's a lot of Ugandans who said that his behavior was somewhat justified because he was looking out for the economic prosperity and also the future of Uganda and a post-colonial Africa. So with that being said, I'm going to present both sides of the story, but going back to it, some would consider the subject of today as an oppressed person who took a staunch stance against uh, colonialism. The other would say that he is a racist, genocidal cannibal that took advantage of power whenever he could. Before we get into the story of Idi Amin, we have to understand the state of Africa at the time when he took rule in 1971 and everything that led up to that. So back in the late 1800s, there was an international conference amongst European nations, which in history books is now referred to as the quote unquote scramble for Africa. This meeting essentially carved out the continent of Africa into colonial regions. And one of the things that sparked this entire meeting amongst all these European nations was King Leopold from Belgium. He declared what is now known today as the Congo as his personal property and set up a bunch of these rubber plantations and did a bunch of horrible shit to all the people that were there. Uh, I think in the end, he ran these like rubber plantations and they had these like insane rules where if like the local uh, Congans didn't like produce enough rubber in one day, he would cut off one of their arms or like kill their daughters in front of them. And he ended up killing like almost 10 million Congans like, uh, or Congonese uh, during his reign. And it was, it was all horrible. But again, nobody really talks about that too much today. And 
to really reiterate this, King Leopold did not declare the Congo a part of Belgium. He declared it as personal property. But this was kind of what initiated the entire scramble for Africa and how all these European superpowers got together to kind of carve it up into their own into into their own colony. To give you an example of some of the European nations and their stakes that they ended up gaining from the scramble for Africa and the European conference, France took a very large part of Northern Africa, which is mostly now known today as Algeria, and the country of Portugal took Angola. And when decolonization happened post-World War II, both France and Portugal got locked into these very long almost they're kind of like guerrilla wars that were very similar to what the u.s faced in vietnam and i bring this up because i'm going to do an episode about this very very soon because they're very fascinating wars like the tactics and everything that they use uh during it but there were many other nations that took part in the scramble for Africa as well, but I just I'm trying to give everyone a basic idea that it wasn't just the British that partook in this. So after everything was said and done, Uganda fell under control of the colonial rule of the United Kingdom. Now I need to discuss something here and need to add the discl- the disclosure that I'm not an expert on racial politics, but just simply stating what I could find and presenting it at face value. So when European nations started colonizing, they needed to maintain police and military control of the regions in which they had acquired. The British in particular, which this might be a surprise being the British essentially controlled like 70% of earth at one time. The UK during the height of their colonial period had a very, very weak army. The British never considered raising a full army because they essentially deputized their colonial subjects to do military slash like police enforcement on each other, both in the colonies as well as during total war uh, within those colonies. But then also when a big conflict came around, such as World War One, the UK kind of shipped their colonial soldiers over to the front lines. In terms of using African subjects to police themselves internally, another example of this is going back to the Belgians. They did this as well in the Congo with what is known now as the Force Publique, which was the Belgian slash military force in the Congo. That was it was completely staffed by Congolese natives, but oversought by Belgian military officers as well as I think like almost like Belgian company managers that owned these rubber plantations in which these Congolese were forced to work. To give you an example of how brutal they were, the Force Publique, they were issued these old uh, hunting rifles that were only like single shot. And whenever their commanders or their officers issued them a like a bullet, if they, if the Congolese member of the Force Publique shot the the round at all, they had to bring back the shell casing. But then they also had to bring back the hand of the person in which they shot, just to give you an idea as to how ruthless some of this was. So now we'll delve into the early life of Idi Amon. The actual birth date of Idi Amon Dada 
is his full name, is kind of unknown because he was born in the tribal areas of Africa, so record-keeping wasn't really that great back then. It's estimated that he was born sometime around 1925 or 1926. Not too much is known about Amin's childhood. He was a part of the Kakwa tribe in Uganda, and his mother was listed as being a herb healer. The Kakwa are a small Muslim tribe that reside in Central Africa. Not too much is known about Amin's father, but supposedly uh, historians say that he was a professor at Kampala University, Kampala being the capital of Uganda. People who did know Amin in his childhood described him as being a bit of a bully and would frequently start fistfights with other kids. One of his childhood friends said they would have to pull Amin away from fistfights as a kid because once he started throwing his hands, he did not stop. So in 1946, Iman made a decision that would pretty much set course for him to go on to rule over Uganda. In 1946, Idi Amam joined the British colonial army under the King's African Rifles. Amman stood out amongst other soldiers because he was about six foot four and well over 220 pounds. Amman was described as a hell of an athlete. He was a lightweight, a light heavyweight boxer from around 1951 to 1960, and he held the heavyweight championship belt for Uganda. A lot of his officers described him as brawn over brain and that Amman was basically illiterate and very short-tempered. Iman would snap at the drop of a hat, but the British officers essentially used Iman as an enforcer to take care of fellow Africans when they got out of line. By 1952, Iman is promoted to corporal. Iman hopes to rise to the rank of sergeant major because at the time, Africans were not allowed to become commissioned as officers in the British Army. Also in the early 1950s, in neighboring Kenya, a tribe that was spread about Uganda and Kenya began a guerrilla war against the colonial British. The guerrilla war that this tribe was fighting against the colonial British, as well as the uh, Ugandan established government at this time, is now known as the Mau Mau Uprising. And this is kind of where Amin came to age and was able to first display his ruthlessness on the battlefield. While Amin was leading a patrol, his squad was ambushed by Mau Mau guerrillas. Amin's squad gained fire control and was able to advance towards the Mau Mau rebels. The Mau Mau guerrillas broke contact, meaning they stopped shooting and started retreating, but one fighter was left behind. Amin took his bayonet and nearly sawed off the head of the Mau Mau fighter. By 1953, Amin was promoted to sergeant in the British colonial army. By 1960, Uganda was released by the British to be self-governed. This was common post-World War II, but I feel like we don't hear about this much in the States, about the decolonization period in Africa after the Second World War. Decolonization was primarily involved European nations that held colonies in Africa. A lot of European nations 
sort of took a hit to the ego during World War II, but these European nations took a giant economic hit following the Second World War and also had serious international pressures to top, stop exploiting these poorer countries in Africa and the world over. It's a very complex topic and I'm just kind of glossing over it hardcore, but just kind of wanted to get those uh, insights out there. There were nations like Portugal that controlled what is nowadays Angola. I think I spoke about this in the beginning of the podcast, but you know, France had Algeria in the north. Uh, you know, the British had claims in Uganda and other nations as well. So, I mean, it, again, it's just, it's a complex topic, but I'm just trying to kind of get this mindset that decolonization was happening throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and went well into the 80s as well. Either way, now that Uganda was heading towards independence, Amin was able to attend British military officers training. And by 1961, Amin was commissioned as the first of two officers at the time in the Ugandan army. Uh, let, let me take that back. Not first of two officers, but first two, one of two Ugandan officers in the Ugandan army. Because before, as we had mentioned, it was British officers and they commanded the Ugandans, their, their colonial subjects. So by October 9th, 1962, Uganda declares its independence as a sovereign nation and holds democratic elections in which they elect, elect Milton Obote as their first president. But keep in mind, and a lot of nation, European nations did this during the decolonization period of Africa, the British still had influence there from a uh, business perspective, and they also still had kind of like government interests in there. But for the most part, Uganda was recognized as an independent and sovereign nation. Keep in mind, these are the Cold War years. So a lot of these emerging nations you see in Southeast Asia and again in Africa, when, when they declared independence, the real question that came after that was, are they going to stay under the influence of Western democracy, or will they slowly fall into the hands of communist USSR and China? At this point, Amin is still in the Ugandan army, and he knew that he had to get in the good graces of Obote if he wanted his military career to succeed. Amin, in the public eye, was already a popular figure in Uganda at this time. He was like a superhero. He was a championship boxer. He was a war-tested soldier. People got behind Amin. Obote was just as popular as Amin, though, with the people of Uganda. But he was kind of more the intellectual type and was seen more of a voice of reason rather than the physically imposing force of Idi Amin. From an international stage, Amin stay, stayed pretty popular with the British because... Amin was kind of more of a driving force for, he, he wanted to pretty much redevelop the Ugandan economy and wanted to keep good business practices within the Ugandan, uh, within Ugandan society. The thing about Obote was he was a lot more left-leaning, a lot more, uh, I don't want to say communist, but like, I guess from an outside perspective and looking at it through the lens of time from a lot of Western nations, I think they saw Obote as more 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 of a commun more going to lean towards the USSR as opposed to siding with uh, Western nations. And I think that kind of drew a little bit concern for say like the British, where they kind of looked more at Amin because Amin had served in the British Army, so I think the British had kind of more uh, more higher hopes for Idi Amin at this time. Also in 1962, Amin had been tasked to stop cattle stealing amongst various tribes in rural Ugandan regions. 
While I couldn't find any specific stories, Amin's actions led to the led the former British to demand criminal charges against Amin. Amin was known for brutal capture and interrogation technique, techniques and tactics against the rural farmers in Uganda. Amin was known for employing literal fascist tactics in his operations against the farmers and others as well, and we'll see this more unfold later. And when I say fascist, I'm referring to like Gestapo-level fascist, not like what people refer to as fascism nowadays. It's like, what? I can't smoke cigarettes in an elementary school anymore? This is fascism. In 1962, Amin was promoted to captain and then promoted to major by 1963. He was sent to the Wilshire School of Infantry where he attended commander's course, which is like just advanced leadership training. Amin was rapidly promoted under a bote, and by 1964, Amin was promoted to colonel. By 1967, Amin was promoted to major general. During this time, Amin got some shit uh, because he had been suspected of smuggling weapons to foreign guerrillas in neighboring African countries, and those weapons were supplied by British and Israeli companies that were sending them over, and then Amin was selling them off to the guerrillas fighting, I think in like Tanzania, and I believe Kenya as well, uh, is who Amin was supplying these arms to. It seemed like there was no kind of disciplinary action to Amin, and it's even suspected that Abote was in on it the entire time. Also in 1967, Abote asked Amin to start setting up military training camps with the ultimate goal of providing assistance to supporters of the pro-Patrice Lumumba administration in the Congo. Lumumba had been recently assassinated, but it was quickly suspected that Amin, with Abote's knowledge, was utilizing the camps to smuggle coffee, ivory, tobacco, and gold. Abote, under international pressure, set up an investigation committee, but this was pretty much just a sham. Again, it it is suspected by some of the sources that I used uh, to research this that Abote was in on it the entire time. By 1968, the relationship between Abote and Amin was going south. Uh, they just they didn't work well together, and I, I believe Amin was pretty open about his dislike for Abote. He didn't think he was as nationalistic as Amin was. He didn't think he was as uh, pro-Ugandan as Amin was, and it kind of just started driving a rift between, between their relationship. There was an assassination attempt on Abote's life in 1968, but Amin could not be directly linked to it, but there were suspicions that he had pretty much ordered it. So, in 1971, Abote attended the Commonwealth Heads of Government International Conference in Singapore. This was essentially a meeting of former British colonies and various other European colonies that were recently granted independence to discuss issues facing their nations and their successes and whatnot, and how they can assist each other. However, though, with Abote halfway around the world, Amin took this as a chance to seize power. One of the main sources I got my information from for this particular episode was a book called The White Pumpkin by Dennis Hills. It's really, really good, and I highly recommend it to anyone who likes travel books. But then also, he kind of discusses like his time in World War II with the British Army, and then his life as a professor at Kampala University in Uganda. And he was, I mean, obviously he was there when this revolution happened. But he stated in The White Pumpkin, Hill states on January 25th, 1971, was like any other night. He was out drinking at a bar till the early hours in the morning. 
when he came out of the bar, he noticed that the roads were slowly being covered with armored personal personnel carriers as day broke. Hills went on to say that he took refuge at a tourist hotel and pretty much just sat in the lobby getting drunk for like the next two days. And once he kind of got off his bender, he realized that Idi Amin had forcefully taken over the country. Amin pretty much had the military in his pocket. He was beloved by all of his men. So, and particularly, mostly the Kakwa men, the men that came from his tribe that were serving the Ugandan army, Amin was easily able to convince all these soldiers from his tribe to have his back, and they all just overtook the entire country. So by March 1971, about two months after the coup, Amin officially reestablishes a dictatorship to Uganda. There were still people who believed in Milton Obote and took loyalty to him, and they were still pretty open about it. Amin quickly established a secret police force that would arrest and torture-slash-murder anyone against Amin or even just a mild supporter of Obote. When you look at pictures of his secret police, it's pretty fucking ridiculous. When you look at pictures of the soldiers in Uganda at this time, you can pick out who the actual like soldiers were because they're in the typical olive drab fatigues. But the pictures of the secret police was uh, one of the pictures I saw was this dude standing next to a soldier in like a purple leisure suit with a neck scarf and a bright white fedora and. Uh, they showed pictures of it in one of the documentaries I watched about Mean, and they were pretty much like, yeah, those are the guys you don't want to fuck with. But they looked so ridiculous. And again, this was the 70s, so I mean, they had some questionable fashion choices then, but it was just seeing it in the documentary, like, it's, it's kind of horrifying to see people dress so brightly, knowing that they're probably about to torture and arrest you. Amin's secret police established essentially these torture chambers in secret off-site locations, almost like black sites. Some of the torture included putting people in boiling vats of water, forcing prisoners to have gladiator fights, where it was kind of like that episode of Sons of Anarchy or like the Dark Knight where they would put like four guys, four people who were arrested in a cell and they would throw like a pipe between them and tell them only one of them was going to come out. Uh, sometimes they would like make them fight to death, fight each other to death with hammers while the guards watched. And one of the most brutal things that I saw that the secret police would make prisoners do was they would make people eat bags of salt until they died of dehydration. Amin also started holding public executions in Uganda's national football stadium on top of all of this that he was doing of his opposition. Records of the exact numbers of people that were tortured and killed by Amin's secret police is unknown because it was common for his secret police to throw the bodies in the Nile River, which because of its high alligator population, ate the bodies of the dead and destroyed any evidence. Countless Ugandans were slaughtered, and amongst them were two Americans who investigated the large-scale violence that Amin's regime was instilling. But one thing should be noted about this uh, during this time is the military itself, even though that they were wide, even though that the almost the entire Ugandan army supported Amin wholeheartedly, Amin was he he was more looking out for the his own tribe, his own eth ethnic group, the Kakas, and. The military itself began holding purges internally, and the army sort of imploded. 
Uh, mostly, they were looking to target members of the Akali people. And in the book, The White Pumpkin by Dennis Hills, he said that there was this time after when Amin took power where you could go out to the Ugandan countryside, which he, he talks about a lot because it's sort of like a travel book as well. So he talks a lot about it, like the hikes he took in Uganda. But he said like during this period, he would see murdered soldiers of the Akali people that were serving in the Ugandan army at this time. So the military itself was, as I mentioned, just kind of doing purges as well internally to get, get rid of any, any ethnic group that Idi Amin was against. And Amin was against a lot of different ethnic groups. Um, so about a year and a half into his reign, on August 5th, 1972, Amin announced that all Indians, Asians, and white Europeans who were not registered as uh, naturalized Ugandan citizens had to leave Uganda within 90 days. Now, I bring up this part of the story, and this is kind of where it gets a little bit complex. So, the British when they first started colonizing Africa, they had already owned India and a lot of smaller Southeast Island chains in addition to uh, getting the colonies in Africa. So when Britain really started putting a firm foot down in Africa and like, or Uganda specifically and started like establishing like a more, like an infrastructure for British colonists to live in, they, the British themselves felt that Ugandans were not capable of running smaller businesses like owning cafes or grocery stores uh they were sort of more like bodegas i can't remember exactly what they called them in the white pumpkin there's a specific name for it so what the british did was they allowed indians as well as other asians from their colonies to come into africa and uganda and run these uh these like smaller local businesses and this really really did not sit well with Idi Amin because Pretty much the British structured everything as like, you know, this entire social hierarchy where British colonists were at the top, then it was like the second class citizens were like the Indians that were running these smaller businesses, and then at the bottom were the Africans, uh, the Ugandans in this particular case, and they were more, more used as like soldiers and stuff because the tribe that Amin was from was known as like the fiercest tribe that produced like the best soldiers and stuff. So the British capitalized on that by trying to recruit as many of them as possible into the King's African rifles. And this is also kind of where uh, the like two sides of the story begin where it's like, was Idi Amin like a cruel dictator or was Idi Amin looking out for African businesses? Because Honestly, if you're going to go and, you know, I'm not trying to support colonialism or justify it in any means, but I feel like, you know, you shouldn't be putting people whose country you're essentially taking over and exploiting for resources. You shouldn't put them at the bottom like the British did with the Ugandans. So kind of the other side of the story where people are like, oh, Idi Amin, like he looked out for Ugandans and he was trying to get us to prosper economically. So that's kind of where like some of the sources, some of the documentaries and some of the articles I read about Idi Amin is where they're like, oh yeah, you know, he was looking out for the greater Ugandan good. He was trying to get us back on our feet and try to get us up, up to scale with other economies of the world by kicking out everyone and allowing Ugandans to 
take over these businesses that were once owned by in by the Indian and Asian colonial subjects of the British. Idi Amin's plan, though, to make all these businesses ran by Ugandans failed astronomically, to say the least. A lot of a lot of the Ugandans who took over these uh, businesses, they didn't really know how to run them. And also with that, there was also kind of a food crisis going on within Uganda. So a lot of these like shop owners were pretty much eating up their own inventory, and then Amin put in this this uh, this like stipend that he would send out to the shop owner, the Ugandan shop owner. So he was pretty much giving them money, then these shop owners would buy inventory, then they would use up all their own inventory and then get more money. They like they weren't generating any kind of profit whatsoever, but the government just kept giving them stipends over and over again, and it started tanking the Ugandan economy, and it started pissing a lot of people off as well. So during this time as well, Amin deploys the army to crush an opposition force that's emerging at the Tanzanian border. When the Ugandan army arrived at the Tanzanian border, it was announced that they were not actually getting paid. The Ugandan army became furious and started uh, pretty much a scorched earth policy on the Tanzanian, on the Tanzanian border, uh, like the, all the villages around there, and began to rape and pillage. And I mean that in the literal sense. Amin was not making any reliable international connections as well. Amin constantly pissed people off, especially the British. It's noted that Amin would get super fucking hammered and in almost a modern day drunk dial or drunk, te drunk texts that we're familiar with, he would send wires or telegraphs to foreign leaders at like 3 o'clock in the morning. In one, Amin told the Queen of England to not get her knickers or panties in a bunch, which I believe was during the Dennis Hill situation, which I didn't really fully explain and I can kind of go into it right now. Basically, Dennis Hills, and he writes about this in The White Pumpkin, was asked to kind of write like articles for British newspapers to kind of give them up to like updates as to what was going on in Uganda at the time. And Amin fucking hated it. So much to the point where I believe Hills was arrested at one point and Amin said that the only way he would release Hills is if the Queen of England personally apologized to him. And again, he he was just really trying to like ruffle the feathers and just chap the ass of the United Kingdom. During this time, it was the British and Israel that was supplying Uganda mostly with their weapons and military equipment. But by the end of 1972, the English and the Israelis finally kind of decided like, hey, this guy Amin is kind of fucking crazy and we're not going to supply him with any of this any of this weaponry anymore because they knew Amin was up to a lot of sketchy shit. It's kind of glossing over this a little bit, but when uh, Bote was in power, his plan was to nationalize a lot of the major industries in Uganda, such as the military and all their arms. They wanted to have everything that that would be pretty much internalized and created in Uganda. And, and I'm not just only talking about military arms, but ever, everything as well. Their steel industries, their, you know, all, all their major, you know, producing industries would become 
pretty much under the Ugandan government with, you know, employed by Ugandans, which ultimately would have forced out all of the British businessmen and British corporations. But Obote did this in more of a diplomatic way, whereas Amin, going back to, you know, his policy of kicking everyone out that wasn't Ugandan, he was more straightforward, just telling anyone that was foreign, get the fuck out. Amin was openly, openly hateful of white British businessmen and corporate executives. He would stage these photos whenever these, uh, like, and he, he would frequently meet with these, like, uh, white British, like, executives and whatnot, and he would stage these photos where he would make them kneel in front of him in order to address Amin. In one instance, and you can find this on Google, he made four British business executives carry Amin in a throne, and Amin called this, quote-unquote, the new white man's burden, in reference to the Roald Dahl poem, uh, The White Man's Burden, which is, uh, Roald Dahl, I believe he's the guy who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate, or Willy Wonka, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, whatever the original book was called, and the poem itself is incredibly racist, and talks about how the Brit, how Europe and the United States, it's, it's their burden as white men to uh, civilize these, like, third world countries, which is... Uh, not true. It's 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 fucked up. Um, but yeah, you you can Google these images of Idi Amin, and they're they're kind of funny to look at. But yeah, he's he's Amin at this point. He's kind of going downhill, uh, and really really just trying to abuse his power and see what all he can get away with on an international stage. So this is still in the early 70s, and it's around this time when Amin is taken under the wing of an up-and-coming Muslim rabble-rouser, Libya's own Muammar Gaddafi. In the 1970s, post-colonialism, there was this like pan-African movement where a lot of previous colonized nations in Africa tried striking economic and defense alliances in, in to better self-govern the continent of Africa. But they got blown off the tracks because most of the leaders at the time and a lot of these like now decolonized nations were drunk with power and alcohol and a lot of drugs as well. So they were level-headed as any alcoholic drug addict with millions of dollars and a full army on their side. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been post-colonial African nations that have had great successes in rebuilding themselves and, you know, getting their economies and their society up to the rest of the world. But some such as Libya and Uganda couldn't help but stick out on the world stage. So around this time, this is where Uganda and Amin shift the support from Western powers to that of the Communist Soviet Union. By 1973, the United States had decided to scale back support for Uganda, while the United Kingdom and Israel cut Amin's regime off completely. Western powers post-World War II were wanting to push back the influence of communism spreading to recently decolonized nations. But with egocentric and flamboyant dictators like Amin, it was difficult to maintain these strong relationships. And I think at this point, the United States is kind of learning from, you know, the this is like the ending of the Vietnam War. And I think the U.S. is kind of really realizing that, you know, you can't take 
these uh, communist threats head on with the military, you have to kind of establish the relationships and allow almost like a uh, like a proxy effect and have like, you know, a third party take care of this. And you have to kind of use the psychological aspect to convince these nations to join that of, you know, the Western democracy. A lot of these developing nations at this time, a lot of their leaders were fairly young. They're from extremely poor backgrounds. And I mean, a lot of this power that they were attaining was pretty much happening overnight. And, you know, you're giving them all this money, all this access and access to, you know, police forces that are willing to arrest whoever they say. I mean, they're, they're kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, they're getting drunk with power. But as I mentioned, Amin at this time was hanging out with Gaddafi, the leader of Libya, the a historically Muslim nation. And this, it was around, I think it may have been around this time where Amin, who had been raised Roman Catholic, had con- reconverted back to Islam because Uganda had a history of a, uh, you know, large Islamic influence. In June of 1976, the, an event occurred that really solidified Amin as kind of a general asshole on the world stage. So the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine hijacked a flight from Air France and it was taking off from Israel to go back to Paris, I believe. And when the plane was initially hijacked and the terrorists were... The, it's an entire different thing. And I'm, I'll probably do an entire episode on the hijacking of this airplane because this is really fucking interesting. They, they, the people who hijacked the plane didn't really know what the fuck they were doing. So they were pretty much flying this plane around with hostages and they didn't know what exactly, like where they were going to go and how this was all going to play out. So Amin allowed the plane to land at Entab Airport in Uganda which, again, it did not score Amin any points on the international stage. Actions like this and the expulsion of Asians and British isolated Uganda further on the international platform. I didn't find how long the plane was actually held in Uganda for, but Amin was very openly sympathetic to the terrorists that overtook the airplane and were holding all these people hostage. However, though, Israeli special forces enacted a hasty hostage rescue operation, which uh, one of their commanders is portrayed by Charles Bronson in this uh, movie called The Raid on Tab. It's pretty cheesy for a 70s television movie, but if you got a rainy afternoon with nothing to do, I recommend watching it. And with this, this kind of brings in the late 70s is what brings in the downfall of Idi Amin's regime. So, Amin has successfully pissed off anyone on the international level. And by 1977, Amin and Uganda 100% off cut off any kind of any diplomatic relations with the United Kingdom, who at this time was kind of like their uh, Western democracy sponsor. This is also when he imposes his own title, his self-declared title that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and he forever refers to himself, his full title, His Excellency, President for Life, 
Field Marshal, El Haji, Dr. Idi Amin, VC, DSO, MC, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the seas, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and Uganda in particular. Also, in addition to this, Amin claimed to be the king of Scotland. He had this like very weird obsession with the region of Scotland in England. Uh, I, I can't exactly remember why, but he the movie The Last King of Scotland is loosely based on Edie Amin. And yeah, for some reason he like wore kilts and shit and like claimed to have been like part Scottish. So this is the part where we kind of have to bring up the cannibalism that Idi Amin was accused of. Now, at this time, Western media was portraying Amin as this like oafish, kind of dumb, erratic, flamboyant dictator. And they, they looked at him more of as a joke, but the reality is Amin probably killed about 300,000 people. It was reported from people who were close to Amin when his regime was in power that certain government officials were personally told by Amin that he kept the decapitated heads of his enemies and or of his specifically political enemies in his own personal freezer in his home. I can't find the interview specifically right now, but there was an interview, one of the final ones that Amin actually did in person, and when he was asked by the reporter if he had ever partook in cannibalism, he said something along the lines of, he didn't say yes or no, but he said something along the lines of, I don't like human meat, it tastes too salty, it's not like leopard meat. That's not the direct quote, but that's basically the gist of how Amin responded to it. So it's very possible that, yes, he did partake in cannibalism. The other side of the coin is going back to how the Western media depicted Amin. There's a lot of people who said that, oh, well, you know, they're, they're kind of portraying him as like this tribal kind of racist stereotype of what people used to think of you know these african nations and these like colonized nations going back to what i was saying about the white man's burden the poem by it there's also a political cartoon if you just google it you can see kind of how people from like southeast asia and africa were depicted in like political cartoons and then look up political cartoons of Idi Amin and they kind of they kind of ref reflect on each other they kind of have some similarities and stuff so i mean there there is some weight to that but i mean amin didn't actually deny that he had ever partaken in cannibalism of you know of his enemies but even outside all of these claims Uganda was kind of going to shit at the time. Their, the, their economy was struggling. And again, the military, who had been or Amin's biggest supporter, they were still not really getting paid at the moment. And there were starting to be tensions rising within the ranks of the military and just the kind of declining you know, societal problems of Uganda at the moment. So, around 1977, there became this giant split in the Ugandan army, and it was pretty much divided into two camps, which were the supporters of Idi Amin, and then there were the soldiers who were 
pretty much pledging their allegiance to the Ugandan vice president at the time, and his name was Mustafa Adrizi. So at the Tanzanian border, there was starting to be a large buildup of anti-Amin forces, and Amin knew that he had to kind of kind of kibosh that shit really quick. So Amin got word that there were people pretty much mutinying in the army against him and they were building up on the Tanzanian border. So Amin dispatched the troops that were loyal to him to go and put put down the uh, possible revolution that was happening. And basically what happened was the troops that were against Amin, they ran across the border to Tanzania or to Tan- Tanzania, sorry, I, I keep mispronouncing all these things, and this kind of kicked off a war between Uganda and Tanzania at the time. This happened in late 1978, I want to say around the November timeline. So the troops who abandoned the Ugandan army, they sought refuge in Tanzania, and the president at the time, Julius Nyerere, he he didn't like Amin at all, and he decided to take in the Ugandan refugees, or I wouldn't say refugees, I guess they're more like political exiles at this point, and he decided to mold them into his own uh, army with Tanzania. And with that, that's what began, what began the Uganda-Tanzanian War. So I'm not going to give an exact timeline as to how the entire war between Uganda and Tanzania panned out, but it basically started with the pro-Amin forces going over to Tanzania to try to exterminate the people who had defected from the Ugandan army. By, and this is uh, around the November 1978 period. This is the end of 1978. But by January 1979, Nairi had mobilized the Tanzanian army. And then they were also joined at this time by the exiles of the Ugandan army. And you, the pro-Amin forces that were with the current Ugandan army, even though that Amin was getting military aid from Libya, from Myanmar, Gaddafi, they still, the pro-Amin forces, they got their asses handed to them. And it was it was a very short-lived war, so I think it really went into full effect in January of 1979, but it was by April where Amin was, was essentially forced to flee Uganda. And he, the Kampala, the capital of Uganda, had fallen at this point. So Amin fled to Libya initially. And then after that, he got sanctioned or got sanctuary in Saudi Arabia. And that is where he spent his final years. After Idi Amman fled Uganda, Milton Obote was reestablished as the president. And as I had mentioned before, Amin had fled to Saudi Arabia, and that is where he lived the rest of his days. Amin stayed out of the spotlight in the public eye for the remainder of his life, and on August 16, 2003, he passed away of kidney failure. 
at the hospital in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. And that that is the story of Idi Amin. Um, I mean, there's some people who say that he was potentially assassinated by the British. There's a lot of conspiracy theory holes that I ran into when researching this. But yeah, that, that was the life of Idi Amin, one of the most ruthless dictators that you kind of probably never heard of. He's definitely kind of the, the indie rock jam of dictators. But that... That is Idi Amin. Uh, go ahead and check out any documentaries about Idi Amin. Uh, there's one on Netflix called, or not Netflix, but on Amazon Prime called The Dictator's Playbook that does a does a pretty good job at depicting his life. There's also The White Pumpkin by Dennis Hills, which I read, and it's a very, very good book. I highly recommend it to anyone. Um, thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, I'm going to... I know it's been a while. I've been sitting on this one for a very, very long time, and it's been a bit of a hiatus. My life has been insane right now. I'm kind of clearing some things up right now, and I should be pumping out some more more content here soon. So just bear with me. I'm this is a one man operation, and I'm I'm gonna gonna try to get some more stuff out here soon. But I thank everyone for listening, and uh, stay tuned for the next episode. But thanks again, everyone, for the support. And uh, again, just to close this out, this has been Walking Through Fire. My name is Brian Hoops, and uh, you know, just look out for the next episode. It should be coming here soon. I have some more free time. So thanks, everyone.